Thanks for listening to the Just Salvos podcast. Get connected with us through our website, justsalvos.com and our various social media accounts. Search for Just Salvos. The aim of our podcast is to engage Salvos in meaningful and respectful discussion regarding controversial or hot topics. The views or comments of those participating in the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the Salvation Army. This podcast was recorded on the land for which the Wandjeri people of the Kulin Nation are the traditional owners and custodians. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Welcome to Just Salvo's second podcast. It's good to have you listening. We can't believe that anyone is tuned in and we're glad that you did and we hope that we make it worth your while today. From time to time in the Salvation Army, we all know that issues pop up that get people a little bit hot under the collar. And it's not just us, of course. It happens in the wider church as well and in society. And Almost out of nowhere, there is this vigorous debate that occurs because someone has expressed an opinion about something. It seems to have got worse for me and I'm I'm getting older. So I, I think with the invention of social media and the instancy of which people can respond, that it seems to have got worse in the sense that we are very quick to judge other people's opinions and to criticize them in a very public way. These days, people are well aware of the fact that there are different opinions to theirs and we play out those differences in the public arena. I wonder if salvationists ever all agreed on everything. I suspect not. (laughs) I suspect that we never really had a common opinion on all topics, but it seems to me today that the arguments that arise are uh, more prominent sometimes a little bit more vicious. And there seems to be an attempt to simplify all arguments and place people on one side of a debate. And we very quickly organize people into good and bad based on where we think we sit on that side of debate. So in this podcast today, we wanted to talk about theological diversity within the Salvation Army and discuss how our differences in theological opinions might impact the the existing Salvation Army now, but also the future Salvation Army as we move towards being one territory. Today, we're very privileged to have a group of people, I want to call them experts, but then they'll get cross, but a group of people that are, are, are able to articulate their opinion and have some education and some understanding and some practical understanding of how these things play out in day-to-day ministry. So with us today, we have Dean Smith, and I'm not going to call anyone by their rank or title. So, you know, I'll just call your name. And if you want to tell us how special you are later, that would be great. We have Dean Smith. Dean is, I've always called him Dean Dean. And he's still Dean Dean because he is the Dean of Students and the Senior Lecturer in Theology and Philosophy, I like that, at Nazarene Theological College, which is one of the colleges linked with the Sydney College of Divinity. So welcome, Dean. Thank you. Yay. And we have Diane Hobbs. Diane's title is very long, but Diane and uh, her husband Pete are uh, in charge of the Greater Geelong Emerging Missional Communities. And so she is one of the Greater Geelong Emerging Missional Communities coordinators. Does that even fit on a business card? <laughs> Whatever that means. But welcome, right, yes, Diane. Thank you very much. <laughs> and we have Jason Davies Kulday. I have a pet name for him, but I won't use that today because it's probably not appropriate. Jason is the manager of the Victoria Social Program and Policy Unit. Welcome, Jason. Good to be here. And we have Mal Davies, and Mal is a core officer at the South Barwon Corps, which sounds so simple. It's nice and short, fits on my business card well. Excellent. 
Thank you all for agreeing to come here today and put your life and yourselves <laughs> on the line. It's funny, it's easy to have an opinion without a microphone. So we appreciate that you've come. You'd imagine that I've been called many things over the years. Some of my friends claim that I am far too liberal and people within the church are often shocked at some of the opinions that they hear coming out of my mouth. If only they knew that by the time I had said those opinions, I've usually changed them. <laughs> my unchurched friends, however, fear that I've become far too conservative and that the longer I'm with the church, the more conservative my views seem to come. Recently, someone accused Just Salvos of having lost touch with sense of reason and of working for Satan, which I felt, even for me, was a little harsh. What theological labels have you had used about you or other people? Certainly not working for Satan. You've <laughs> done still well time. to get there. Still time. <laughs> I'm wondering what the pay rate's like, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, my theology is, is very evangelical, so probably the one I get branded with most is fundamentalist. Mm. Um, yeah, I guess for some people there's, there's, um, there's liberal as a small part of the wedge and anything outside of that is fundamentalist <laughs> um, and I, I'm in that part. Thank you. I'm called a God-botherer sometimes uh, and at the same time, uh, like you on the other side, I'm a heretic or I'm responsible for dragging the Salvation Army in some direction that's unclear. Um, uh, yeah, th those kind of things I've, you know, have been a person that uh, people feel the need to warn others about <laughs> because of my opinions. We're not always so overt in our opinions but we have actually been called Marxists and uh, that we... Uh, or will be the downfall of the Salvation Army. <laughs> so, um, yeah, generally liberal. We're, we're, we're clumped into that um, camp. <laughs> William Booth was called a Marxist too, so you're in good company. I know. <laughs> that, mm, that's right. I find that one, it's just the last couple of years that people have come up with calling us Marxists. Yeah, so that's that quite new. Okay. Mm. We had some Red Shield collectors last weekend who were called communists. Oh, excellent left them befuddled. They didn't know how to respond. <laughs> yeah. So how about you, Dean? Where have people labelled uh, you? Look, heretic I think is probably one that I've had from time to time, usually by people that actually don't know me, but um, it's actually a lot of the uh, discussions about this and labels often are sort of not from people that actually have spoken to you or mm. talked but they've heard it through the grapevine mm. um, and so therefore... Um, the labels sticks and... I think it would take a, a good deal of intellectual capacity to label some of you because I've read some of your work and, frankly, uh, I'm not smart enough to understand it. So assigning a label to you based on what I've read would be quite difficult <laughs> for me, but, you know, other brighter people than me have probably done that. So I think what you're suggesting is that often we're labelled based on people's interpretation of our theology rather than people actually being aware of what we truly think. Would that be true for you all? Or, or, or something that's captured, so even the idea that you've committed to a course of study around something, you know, puts you in some kind of academic box which allows you to be dismissed by some people. And I think what Dean said about actually being labelled based on something potentially you might, like a question you might have asked, not necessarily you're asking because that's actually fundamentally what you believe, but actually you're engaging with your community or your peers or even an article that you've you've read Um 
and you're actually reflecting on that. And so you might question or engage in a conversation and then people then suddenly go, this is your assumed position. And so it's it's about how we can, I don't know, take down some of those boundaries that actually where people try to put people into boxes and encourage that mm. discussion. Yeah. And I think part of the challenge perhaps is that once you're labelled, that label kind of sticks, doesn't it? You know, so there's a sense in which you may have rethought things and, and yet, oh, it's too late because we've already decided which camp you fit in. Is that true for other people? Even if the label didn't fit in the first place. So as Dean said, you know, sometimes it's by someone who doesn't know you or you never even hear how they came to that conclusion. There's no analysis or, you know, the people who might have, you know, referred to me as a heretic. They're not quoting anything that I've specifically said or argued why that opinion is heretical. They're just applying a label without any consideration. So you never get an opportunity to answer that or to be, you know, genuinely hold yourself accountable to it. I think theologically too, there's because there are so many um, uh, levels or it's like a gradient, isn't it? We're going to refer to that, I think, a bit later on. But sometimes we don't know all of those, so we put someone in the box that's closest to that. Yeah. Um, I think years ago when I was involved at the War Cry and we'd get our CDs that would be sent in for review, there was a guy on staff, Richard Lewis, who's a very knowledgeable musician. Something would come in. I wouldn't even know what category of music it was. <laughs> it's like alt country, pope. Huh. Folk, folk rock something and and I, I'd go to Richard and I'd say what sort of music is this and he'd tell me the genre I think we can do that theologically someone will express an opinion and I think doesn't sound like me therefore they must be liberal yeah yeah, yeah. People often say to me, oh, why don't you write a book, which I think is a very funny thing to ask me. But one of my greatest fears was always once you put something in print, then that opinion has to stay forever. But I've only come to realise, because I'm a bit slow, once you put something on the internet, it appears as though that opinion stays forever too. So I think with the introduction of the ability to keep anything I say forever and use it either for me or against me, it means that just a little snippet of an idea might become how someone labels me. Have you I think, experienced that? Yeah, and I think also it's about the interpretation of the labels that we receive because I think sometimes we receive labels for people to actually place us as somewhere potentially separate from themselves. Um, but also it's about how we interpret those those labels too. So when I was called that Marxist, then I was like, well, what does that mean? And what are they trying to say? And is it actually, that's actually might be a good thing. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. depending on which which viewpoint you come from. Um, so it's also about how we are assign those labels to ourselves too. Yeah, I think you've touched on something there. Why do you think we feel it necessary to assign labels to one another, particularly when it comes to our theology? It's how we identify people. I'm, I mean, in Australia, especially if you go to a, a party, a backyard barbecue or whatever, one of the first questions is, what do you do for a living? What do you do for a crust? And as soon as we know someone's a teacher or a plumber or a truck driver, we start to form our idea. Okay, this is the sort of person they are because they've just said the words, I'm an accountant. And we do that theologically. Uh, it, it helps us to place people in a sense. Oh, okay, so that's who you are. That's the sort of person you are. And we form this whole stereotype. It's about tribal identity too. So we mm. do it with football clubs. Mm. You know, are you for me or against me? Are you one of the band that are part of my team or are you one of everyone else who is against that? Uh, it's the theological or social version of the same kind of thing. I think we um, too, we tend to think in, um, it's slip into thinking binary in binaries. So in a sense, a label is, 
you know, you have to be either this or that. And I think in the West we tend to think in binaries and it's hard for us to think in terms of this and that. It's easier to say, oh, well, you're this and I'm, you know, so we, we use labels to fit into a kind of a binary way of thinking and I think that's what probably causes some problems. Why do you think it gets so nasty? Why do you think in labelling people, if it's just about categorising people to understand and work out where we fit into the the scheme of things, why do you think, and increasingly, it seems to me that it it gets nasty? What's that about? I think, oh, sorry, I I just think it's sometimes generated out of a place of fear or um, a place where they're not necessarily informed um, of your own perspective, it's that lack of dialogue sometimes that comes where quick assumptions are made and quick projections are made and then um, it's determined on your own personal response to that and sometimes that's driven by natural responses like our fight or flight. If, the, if, we, if we view this person as potentially a threat to us, then in that sense we want to sometimes become close-fisted, we want to become you know, um, oppositional, We rather than actually trying to slow those natural responses down to actually have eyes to see and ears to hear, potentially what that other person is saying and that, you know, what, what was said before about that, the binary places we put ourselves in, often actually within that dialogue we actually find that there's more places of you know, where we agree with each other rather than disagree. And it's actually in that dialogue and that respectful relationships and and actually slowing, you know, that some of those natural responses and quick assumptions that we can actually formulate potentially better opinions, like yep. or not mm. better opinions, but perhaps more <coughs> informed opinions. Yep. I agree. It's that moment where you transcend the label kind of in relationships. So the thing that really heightens this kind of uh, discussion or where it's kind of adversarial, it's me against you, that's only allowed by the kind of thinness, the narrowness of the relationship, which is at a distance or which doesn't exist at all. But actually when you engage each other as human beings and you can see beyond those labels to the reality, which is more complex, uh, it's much harder to hold those labels up and it's harder to hold those labels up in opposition against one another too. Most people fear anything that's different. Uh, I sometimes fear anything that's new. So if someone's brought up through their life, through in the church, through Sunday school and so on, and they're taught X equals X and this is what it is, and suddenly you get to a point where you're 25, 30, whatever it might be, and someone says, no, actually, I think X equals Y, they might be right, but it throws you for a loop because your understanding is X equals X. And that happens theologically where there's something I've always believed and that's what it is. Someone else says something different and suddenly it throws my head in, oh, maybe I've had it wrong all along. So so, I sort of fear anything that's different. So what's really at stake here then? It's not just about knowing who's in what camp. What's what's really going on here, do you think? Um, I I think sometimes, going back to what you're saying about relationship, I think sometimes um, the 30-second soundbite, which is really what our society is now, used to a 30-second soundbite if you can't get it across in that time. Whereas to actually express views properly, theologically, you probably need some time and you need um, to nuance your views. It's not just simply black and white. It's often a nuanced view. But nobody has that time to sort of to engage in that sort of way. And so often it, uh, it comes back to the idea of the label is put on somebody 
from a 30-second conversation or a 30-second soundbite, um, whereas really I think it comes to relationship. I think the ability to be able to sit and hear um, the view, uh, which is often uh, takes, um, you know, the old idea of sitting around and having an hour or a couple of hour conversation and understanding uh, we, where we can ask our questions to get clarification, they can respond. Um, but, of course, these days it's um, it's all v- happens very quickly. And so it's much easier in the current climate where everything's a 30-second soundbite to draw wrong opinions or false opinions based on a something that someone said. Yeah. I think this is what I really like about this concept too for these podcasts is that we can actually draw people from very different theological perspectives, draw them together and have kind of an informed, educated, you know, um, dialogue and still be at the end of it on the same page, moving in the same direction, even even though um, we are quite diverse in our ex- exposure to the world, our cultural, our socio- sociological, political backgrounds, um, they will inform the choices that we make now and, and our interpretation of theology. But ultimately, even with that in mind, uh, we can still move our ship forward, mm. you know, together. Yeah. And I think probably there needs to be some real compassion for people who feel threatened by strong theological opinions because the reality is there is a lot at stake, mm. isn't there? And I think that we often underestimate that we're actually asking people to challenge the things that they've based their life, their their whole world on. And so by not having adequate conversations, as Dean was saying, that we based on very limited information, we're actually asking people to have a big shift in their thinking, which undermines sometimes their very identity and sense of purpose. So I think mm. being able to acknowledge that is a, is a real help as we go forward for people. What do you think about that? I mean, we sit right in the centre of that tradition. Um, let me be the first to bring the Bible into the discussion. Excellent. But, you know, we, we, worship, we worship Jesus who was crucified by the authorities of this, his day because he represented a threat to power. Um, And this is absolutely what some of that is about. So I think sometimes, you know, the discussion might dismiss the idea of theology as something that's going on in your head or some kind of minor, you know, kind of marginal thing. But as you say, it's actually very strongly part of our identity and who we are. We we don't want that challenged. Uh, But often it is going to be these days. You know, we live in a world in which Christian influence is declining really significantly. uh, And we've had the better side of that for a very long time. And so the sense of kind of losing social privilege, losing power in society, losing power and control, even within our own churches is incredibly threatening to people. But it's exactly those kind of power struggles that is at the centre of our faith, at the centre of the crucified Christ. Yeah. I often think about it that when I challenge one theological opinion on something, it's like I'm removing a brick from a wall for people and that they feel as though the whole structure will fall down if we do that. Is that your experience? Certainly as a teacher of first-year theology students for 15 years or more, every every year there is the same process um, of, you know, the um, students uh, coming across new ideas for the first time. There is that sense of the ground's about to go from beneath me if I if I give this up. And, and so there is, a, and it's because, I think it was said before, it's because 
our beliefs are so important to us. Uh, it's so tied up with who we are, so tied up, so that when we start to question those, then it can feel as if I'm losing control of uh, my identity, I'm losing control, and so there is that sense of um, the rug's being pulled out from under me and if I allow it, if I go so far, then what is too far? And so there becomes a concern about that, I think. So, yes, I think... Um, that becomes an issue for people. Yeah. And maybe leaves people questioning their whole life choices about why they are doing what they do and so on. That's my experience. I remember a conversation with someone that said, if I didn't believe that, then I don't know how I would work out everything else that I've done with my life. It, it, would, it would seem as though I've wasted my life. And I, I realised then what was at stake for people. And, and I think Dean's spot on and speaking from someone from uh, an, an evangelical background, my, my parents, my grandparents and so on, and certainly me, a very evangelical theology, um, one of the cornerstones of how we believe and how I believe is about conviction. It's about being convinced. It's about solid rocks that our faith is built on and so on. Um, so in some ways I've almost been envious of those who are more liberal in their thinking because of the quicker ability to change or to say, yeah, hang on, actually that's a better argument. Now I'm going to believe this. For someone like me, it's like there's these solid foundations. This is what I believe. This is what my parents believed. It worked for them. It works for me now uh, and so on. To pull out one of those bricks for someone who's of my theological tradition is, is, can be shattering. Now, I remember, you know, when I was at college and Dean, spot on, when I was at college in our first year, there were people around me almost in tears during lectures because suddenly things that they believed forever were being told, well, that's probably not quite right or that's not what it meant or that's not what he said and so on. Um, so, yes, it is a challenge, but yeah, I'd argue maybe even more of a challenge for someone from an evangelical background. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. I come from basically an unchurched background and I'm the sort of person that can adopt new ideas quite early. And so for me, uh, the the key thing is to stop and realise how much is at stake for other people. Because for me, partly it's an intellectual exercise, partly it's just very pragmatic that my theological opinions need to change in practice. And then I see the look on people's faces and I realise I, I have, you know, gone in with boots again where I should have tiptoed quietly. So... It, it is a really difficult, challenging space. What about within our own denomination particularly, there seems to be such a variety of theological opinions. Why do you think that is? How did that come about? I think that's always the case. I, I think there were differences between William and Catherine Booth at the very beginning. In fact, I think there were differences between William Booth earlier and William Booth later very and much. William Booth later again, you know. So... Uh, he changed his mind. That kind of diversity is absolutely part of our movement from the very beginning, just as it was part of the Methodist movement before that. And, you know, you trace that kind of right back through history. I mean, again... Uh, here I am banging on about the Bible, but one of the beautiful things about the richness of the Bible is the diversity that's represented within it. Sometimes we kind of strain to look for kind of, a, you know, the unity, the thread through there. But I, for me, part of the richness and the wealth of what the material in the scripture is about the way that it represents different views and doesn't always feel the need to resolve them, uh, is able to have them living, you know, kind of alongside each other as different perspectives that relate to different times, different cultures uh, that match that particular moment for that person. Well, even Paul had great, you see that change in his theology mm. too, that changes over time with the passing of Jesus or the resurrection of Jesus. And I think it's, I think it's really important that we do... Um, grapple that even 
and overcoming that vulnerability that we're talking about with with theology of asking those questions and um, and hiding away from asking the questions of what if this means that I'm going to lose my faith and actually encouraging each of us to actually really wrestle as a sign of health that actually where am I sitting with with this theology at the moment. That's one of the things I think I really love about William and Catherine is the birth of the Salvation Army came out of that wrestle that of what they were observing and what how that, you know, um, was reflected in in what they knew and understood as scriptures versus what was being played out within the church at that time, within the community. You know, it, it moved him to be asking and fighting for those questions. Well, what what a what's happening? Why are we doing what we're doing? What's going on here that we're not addressing? And and that fundamentally was the the foundation of the Salvation Army. Do you think for a time we may have been so busy doing the business of being the Salvation Army and doing what we believe our part in God's mission is that perhaps we didn't ask the deep questions of theology in the same way that's being asked now? I get the sense that there might have been a period of time. I'm sure the conversations always happened, but that there's more questioning now. Do you think that's true? Um, sociologically, I think um, every movement starts off usually with a fairly strong shared agenda of things and, and that includes beliefs. So so I think when the Salvation Army began, it, it had a fairly strongly shared set of views, just like the Reformation, the period of the Reformation, people, the reformers all for uh, at least for the first probably dozen or so years agreed on justification by faith and they, they all shared that similar view and that's what gave their identity. But I think as time goes on, uh, as, a gen- as each generation comes, uh, any movement is going to start to reflect the broader community of which it's a part. And so a lot of those shared ideas then are not quite so shared. Um, so uh, I just think it's part of the natural progression of any movement of any group that uh, and often people will see that as a sort of a negative thing. They'll see that as, oh, we've lost the vision that we've had. But in fact, um, just like the early church sort of started, uh, probably had a would have been always diverse, but there was a much more strongly shared views that over time didn't take long before they started arguing about what does it mean to be a Christian. Some say it's to go out to the desert, others stay in and do this. Uh, So it doesn't take long and so I think it's just a part of the natural progression and I think we imagine that that we should return to some sort of Mm. uh, utopian time when we all sort of sung kumbaya, you know, uh, and sort of all had an agreement about everything, which I don't think ever was the case, but I think as an organisation or a movement develops and grows, it becomes less and less that way because our children start to disagree with us. (laughs) The next generation starts to think differently. Do you think um, that it comes back to that vulnerability of then expressing those views that if if for some... We are almost in in a rut, as like as in we just are so happy doing what we've been doing. That actually there have been people that have gone before us who have asked questions and then have kind of been isolated or alienated or have moved away. Um, that there have been there has been a reluctance for people to actually raise questions or um, express some form of diversity because of the implications of potentially to themselves and their families and you know the Salvation Army really. 
Yeah, and I think there's a reality that yesterday's heretic is today's conservative. I think mm. that's, that's normal, isn't it? Um, I suspect, too, there's been unprecedented change sociologically in the world in the last however many years. And so actually articulating our theology for the world that exists now is also a challenge and we have to think about things that perhaps people didn't have to think about. And and so we're, we're looking at what does God say and where is God in situations that didn't appear to exist or didn't exist 50 years ago. Do you think that affects it too? I think it's an interesting position in that while... Um, and, and this gets down to, I think, one of the crux differences between uh, uh, liberal theology and evangelical theology, that is that while there are changes in culture and changes in society and, and yes, sociological changes, do the foundational doctrines stay the same? Um, Jesus still died and was resurrected and what happened happened and so on. Um, you know, we're, and as I said, it gets to the core of the matter in terms of uh, when do we start to say Christian doctrines need updating? Mm. Now, I'm of the theological tradition that say they don't. They're the ones that have stood for the last however many centuries still work. They're pretty good, whereas others would say, but they don't keep up with society or culture. I say they don't have to. They're timeless. So I think you're right at the heart of it. So, yes, there are changes sociologically. Does that mean straight biblical and Christian doctrine should change? Yeah, I mean, how is it that we all read the same Bible and we come up with different theological ideas and opinions? It's partly because it's a great book. Um, it's a good so read. much depth yeah. in it. But, yeah, I think also that the world has changed obviously so much um, since Jesus, since the Old Testament, but actually human nature really hasn't in the sense that we still, you look around there's still fractured families, there's still poverty, there are still those same issues that Jesus fought for to raise awareness of. And and so some things have changed, yeah, definitely a lot. I mean, obviously it's, it's quite different. But the person down the street right now is just worried about where is God in my life right now? I can't feed my family, our family's fractured, uh, parents are holding knives to their children's throat. You know, they're wanting to know actually where is God in this um, and some things haven't really changed. So we can hold fast to our traditions because, you know, obviously we are looking at quite a different picture than what our parents and our, our um, former generations did but actually some of those same issues that they, you know, they experience we are today still. I take a pretty pragmatic view of some of this stuff. So, um, you know, you can measure a whole bunch of ways in which society's changed, particularly in the last 50 to 60 years. Um, and whether or not you agree with some of those changes, they've occurred and they've changed the kinds of conversations that people in the church have with people outside of the church. Um, and over that period, the church, certainly in Australia, has been declining really consistently. Uh, there's, you know, no doubt about that. So uh, we've been unsuccessful in our evangelical methods, you know, whether, you know, that's been a successful strategy or not isn't in doubt. Uh, you know, the evidence is kind of overwhelming that it's not been a successful strategy. Now, does that mean we throw it all out and start again and, and try and base something on only sociological data? No, I don't think it does. But I do think that we need to have a, a 
a more rigorous, robust kind of conversation about what it means to engage with 21st century people uh, and and understand the starting point from their point of view, not only from our tradition's point of view. And perhaps too to analyse what are our non-negotiables. And I, I, it surprises me how many times when I say to people, well, what are your non-negotiables? That there hasn't been a great deal of thought put into settling on what those things are because I suspect if we did have that conversation, we'd probably find we have a lot more in common than we realise. But there's this perhaps a perception about what our beliefs are and so we tend to put everyone on a continuum, you know. You're either liberal or you're fundamentalist or, you know, we might use nice words like conservative and progressive and things like that somewhere in the middle but we seem to want to pigeonhole people and put them somewhere on a line and work out what we have that's different from them. Do you think that it is possible for us to be united in our mission even if we have different theological opinions? And I'm not asking Dean to answer this yet because I'm going to ask him a little bit different question in a minute. But for the others, do you think it is possible for us to be united in our mission and yet have different theological opinions? Yeah, no doubt. I, uh, of course it is. And I, I go back to what Jason was saying earlier about the football team, uh, that sort of thing. I'm sure I can barrack for my football team, but I can allow others to barrack for their football team. That would the, be Geelong where the, you live now, thank wouldn't you? it? God yes. bless <laughs> <football> <laughs> Just checking. <laughs> um, but the fact is at the end of the day, we all love football. Yes. We all enjoy watching a good football match. Um, so I think, yes, there is certainly room in the Salvation Army. And, and look, part of it comes back to maybe Body of Christ stuff too that we need that part and we need that part. Um, if you know, I've said to my congregation before, imagine if the whole church was just like you. If, if everyone in that church was just like you, there would be some things <laughs> that our church would do fantastically and, and brilliantly and there'd be some things that would be forgotten and never bothered with. And I think it applies for the Salvation Army too. Imagine if the whole Salvation Army, every member, everyone who attended was of an evangelical theological tradition. There'd be some almighty strengths but some glaring weaknesses. Imagine if everyone was extremely liberal in their theology. Again, some wonderful strengths, but probably some gaps, some glaring weaknesses. So, yes, we need all sorts. I collected in the Red Shield Appeal with a group of Sikhs uh, who have some very different theological beliefs to me, but we gathered together on that same day to join in the mission of God to kind of, you know, help the work of the Salvation Army. Uh, if I can get together with people from a fundamentally, you know, quite diverse theological tradition than my own to do that kind of work, why couldn't I do it together with fellow Salvationists? Um, you know, that's, that's what it comes down to for me. And I think for, for me, I, my immediate response to that was yes, because I, I actually see diversity as a really great thing. It's, it's healthy. It's, it's good to ask questions. It's good to, to meet with people that are different from different um, perspectives um, to you and see the world in different ways, even from different uh, religious backgrounds. Um, so I, I see that as yes. I think the struggle is when, when sometimes we do try... Um, to bring down those that we see as as opposite to us, and and sometimes in this language, in this, you know, rather than actually seeing it from a positive perspective and actually going, this is actually healthy that you hold this different opinion to me. In fact, I'm going to target you and people like you, and 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 really label you um, 
I think that can be really unhealthy. And I think that there's um, potentially a lot of really great leaders that we have lost from the Salvation Army because they've been either marginalised, labelled, rejected, thrown out. Like, And actually, they're still wonderful ambassadors for Jesus, but now not in the Salvation Army anymore. And I think that's actually really... um, it's detrimental. It's really sad, actually, yeah. that we can't, within our own diversity, just encourage each other to respectfully play out what what are we wrestling with and what's at stake here. I used to think that I just occupied my own little space in the continuum, which changed from day to day and which other people had often assigned me to, and that perhaps we should all just settle for that. And maybe if we showed a little bit more tolerance, we would be able to get along and and work on the mission. But then I read Dean Smith's work, and so I'm glad that Dean's with us today. Dean, you actually suggest that rather than just occupying our space on a continuum or a spectrum, that the divisions that split us are actually best understood when we look at them from, and he'll explain this, I'm sure, as incommensurable paradigms or traditions. Could you explain this for us, please? I'll be happy to, but first up, I need to say that uh, this is a theory that you can reject, <laughs> uh, if oh, you like. We may already have done <laughs> you may so. Have already <laughs> done so, and that's, that's fine. Um, it's really a, um, building on a, a theory that was put forward by Thomas Kuhn, uh, who is a philosopher of, philosopher of science, and what he was trying to do is explain the way science works or how science develops through the ages. The typical view of science is that it, uh, it's like a bucket theory that science, uh, in its uncovering of how the way the world works and how things happening, it's kind of filling the bucket with truth. And basically, uh, the idea being uh, that eventually one day the bucket will be full and science will have uncovered reality, basically, it will know all the truth to be had. Kuhn disagreed with that idea and he basically said that, no, that's not how it happens at all. What happens is that um, science works within paradigms, that is uh, sort of a worldview, uh, and that it works and it progresses within that worldview until problems start not being solved. Uh, Science fails in its uh, basic understanding of the way things work and the way the world works. And young scientists then begin to, uh, there comes a sort of an epistemological crisis where people, the world no longer starts to make sense. And then young scientists have the creative energy to start thinking about another possible explanation for everything. And then what happens is in a period of time, eventually there's a paradigm shift. And so, for instance, moving from a Newtonian uh, paradigm to uh, an Einsteinian uh, view is not just simply small adjustments to the way the world works, but a completely different way because uh, Newtonian uh, science r- relies on determinism, uh, strong determinism, whereas in the Einsteinian paradigm there are there's indeterminism and there's uh, possibilities of uh, um, uh, things not being following that. And so uh, I take that up then and basically say that I think really that's, uh, this for me is the best explanation for me of understanding. People may not uh, agree with me, but for me it's really come to uh, see theology in the same way that Kuhn saw science, so that in some ways that at particular periods of time, uh, liberal theology or progressive theology as, as it's often referred to these days, actually represents a different worldview. It's a different way of understanding 
reality that takes uh, takes uh, reason and experience as the founding uh, ways, and that's the authority for that particular paradigm. Uh, evangelical, conservative, uh, ultra-conservative fit within a more a traditional understanding where the authority is the Bible and tradition. Um, um, and so the, these different views. So I guess in a, in a sort of a fairly short way, that's that for me has been a, a, a way of explaining how is it that, for instance, churches can become so... So, for instance, in the Uniting Church, uh, the United Theological, uh, uh, United... Uh, what's the church? The Uniting Church in America anyway. They're basically uh, getting to a point where they will probably split over the... Uh, homosexual, the gay question. Uh, and I think really when it comes down to it, when you actually look at why is it that there is such disagreement, I think it comes down to what is the authority. And and for the conservative evangelicals, it is the authority of scripture. And that's the, the arguments that you will read are all based in biblical texts. Yep. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the liberal or progressive side will be talking about things like genetics and science and their their basis of authority will be built more upon the science, upon reason. Uh, and, and these views simply people are, end up talking past each other. They're not actually discussing on equal terms. They're sort of starting off from a different place and it's no, not surprising that they end up in a different place. So what do you think of that theory, people? I think uh, I think it's absolutely got some truth to it, particularly kind of when you look at people in groups, because that um, <clears throat> group nature of trying to, uh, you know, all share a common belief and be part of the community by that, you know, attracts that. I, I think it breaks down on an individual level. So uh, you might have someone who is theologically conservative but socially progressive, for instance. Or uh, so if you look at a single dimension of what people believe, you know, you could split creationism against, you know, evolution or something like that. And I think that kind of theory works. They become absolutely irreconcilable. Um, but I suspect that's part of this thing that we began with in talking about this kind of otherness and prejudice against people who we label is only allowed by kind of a really shallow, shallow interaction between people. And the deeper you kind of go past that, the more you're able to genuinely kind of transcend some of those limitations that that the buckets even make no more sense, whether they're separate or together. Uh, in fact, we're, we're all sorts of complex, uh, you know, human beings that are evolving our ideas and our practice all the time. Yeah. I think for me, reading your theories, Dean, it helped me understand why the more articulate argument wasn't the answer or greater patience in helping people to see things from my perspective wasn't the answer, that actually we were at two very different starting points. And so, as you said, we were talking past each other and I've felt that a lot in my conversations. Uh, you know, we're just, we're not even talking about the same thing. And so it becomes too easy, too convenient perhaps to just lump people in one of the buckets rather than to try and tease out where those ideas came from and what is the paradigm that they're operating from and how then we can perhaps have common goals and walk alongside each other. Yeah, and the implications that, that those um, outcomes of those discussions or decisions have on the greater community, mm -hmm. uh, not just the church body but the greater community as well. And I, mm, I think 
potentially it's been in those sometimes destructive conversations where we haven't really, we've put through it forward our own perspectives and gathered our little troops together to kind of reinforce our own perspectives without really listening well to the other perspectives that that people who are observing and listening to our dialogue have actually disengaged now because it's been destructive rather than helpful. When I was at uni one or two years ago, many years <laughs> ago, um, when I remember one of my philosophy lecturers uh, talking about what he referred to as ice cream arguments um, and he'd say, you like chocolate ice cream, someone else likes strawberry ice cream, there's no real argument there. They're allowed to like strawberry ice cream. You're allowed to like chocolate ice cream. You're quite different and so on. I think theologically what we try to do is to win people over. You must love chocolate ice cream or no, you must love strawberry ice cream rather than saying, look, I like chocolate ice cream. You like strawberry ice cream. We both like ice cream. Let's just move on. And that's that's where I think the the paradigm that Dean's talked about sort of works, that there is this, this spread of uh, beliefs as such along the line and um, it's not just this camp or this camp um, and you must be in one of those camps. And getting back to what Jason said earlier about the tribal thing, that the energy then is put into dragging people into my tribe. Um, you must be in my tribe. Uh, it could be an ice cream argument. It could be, I like chocolate, you like strawberry. Yeah, it could be, except there's a lot more at stake, isn't there? Because you can always decide not to eat ice cream. But what we're discovering within these sort of debates is that they do damage to those that are already followers of Jesus, but then the damage that it does for those who we claim to exist for is very great. And and I certainly know within my own family, I still come from a largely unchurched family. And because we cannot agree or disagree nicely, Mm -hmm. they actually decide that the whole church and all of theology is not worth listening to. So I guess I agree with you that intellectually we can say that, but the outworking of that for me and for those that I love and for the world that I care for is very, very different. What do you think about that? I I agree. And I think actually um, the online um, debates um, that have been generated, are really destructive and I've actually pulled down many of, you know, com- I just don't engage in that in that forum because I just immediately come from the perspective of, I, I think, guardianship for my community, like the greater people that we're actually every day just trying to love and to bring into a faith understanding of um, and these as being observers of these discussions are actually never helpful for them. It actually raises more questions and potentially sets them back um, on their journey. And I, I just think it's, it's difficult. We, I think, and it's not necessarily about the questions that we raise because I really think that we need to be having these, uh, these debates and theological deba- debates and um, increasing our expressions of diversity and encouraging us in our different diversities. But I think th- it's the, the forum in which we do that um, so that we can, I think, some safeguard in a sense some and protect some of the people that we're actually supposed to be shepherding and therefore, you know. Yeah, I, I think the pastoral imperative is actually really quite vital um, and a, an understanding of... Um, Fowler's stages of faith um, and the way that people develop through those stages of faith, being aware as pastors that, in fact, that people who are moving from stage four to stage five where they move from uh, a fairly solid 
understanding to a, where they start to critique and question and where they're in a place where they're trying to make sense of their faith, then we need to be beside them and to help them to move through that. Now, sometimes in the Salvation Army, we haven't been very good at being able to make a safe space for people to ask those difficult questions and we've perhaps even pushed them out because you know, it's a bit too awkward for us and sometimes that's because we don't know how to, we haven't got our own answers to be able to help them. But um, And also being aware of the fact that not everybody's going to be at that stage and that we need to be sensitive to people. So it's, it's the pastoral imperative I think is very important when it comes to a whole lot of these questions is to know, uh, to have some understanding of where people are at in their journey and to be able to provide them or to help uh, give them a space wherever they happen to be. Um, and if that means they're in a place where the world's not making any sense to them, to come alongside and help them through that journey. Um, and I think if uh, that being pastorally sensitive I think not just simply wanting to shock or uh, shock and awe, you know, <laughs> just to sort of give radical views just to sort of stir people up or whatever doesn't help. Um, Although it does sound a little bit like the bucket theory there that they're moving on through a journey and eventually they'll have enough knowledge to form the right theological opinion and whichever side I start from will clearly be the right theological opinion. So it is, it's very complicated, isn't it? Um, holding a, a specific theological opinion does not necessarily mean that I'm immature in the faith no. or that I'm mature in the faith, but that I have come at it from a different angle perhaps. I'd like to think that it is possible that I can be conservative theologians Theologically, but still inclusive, for instance, or that I can be liberal theologically, but still believe in miracles and still hold scripture as a primary source for my decision making. Is that possible? Can we do that? I'd say that would be the hope. <laughs> be the hope? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, we've got to remember that this whole kind of perceived divide between fundamentalists and liberals or whatever, like that's a hundred years old. It's relatively new. The Salvation Army existed before that. And if we're going to exist after that, we'll have to find a way of transcending that. Um, you know, our one of our national mission values now is diversity. And I think that's going to be one of the hardest ones for us to embrace because we are literally concerned with uniformity in a whole bunch of ways. Uh, you know, we like things to look and feel the same and consistent, uh, but there's a whole bunch of reasons for which not only is that not helpful, but we found it excludes people uh, and Jesus was after the opposite, actually. He wanted to draw people in rather than push them out. And collaboration is one of those as well Absolutely. within our mission values as well. You know, and I think that's that's vital for the health of the Salvation Army and where we're moving is that we actually continue to collaborate with those of differing opinions because it's actually in that unpacking, as we said, that we're actually, it's either strengthens our argument or potentially, you know, we might come at it from a different perspective um, because we've actually enabled ourselves to act, like unpack what we've always believed to be true. And as I said, there's, there is a fear and a vulnerability in that, but there's also, you know, great opportunity in and a freedom in potentially being in a, in a healthier position um, if we allow ourselves to do that. I was just going to say um, another person who uses that same term, incommensurability, is a fellow by the name of Alistair McIntyre and he... He argues that you can only actually understand an incommensurable position from within that position. And so the idea there is that you take the anthropological approach. That is, 
uh, rather than talking and sort of putting across your views, you actually, the anthropologist goes into a culture and they seek to understand mm -hmm. the views from within inside that before they actually start speaking. Um, and so it's, it can be tempting to sort of uh, be wanting to speak and to put forward our views, but actually um, if we're seeking to understand, uh, we need to, uh, I guess, be listening to to exactly giving time to what people are saying, which takes relationship, which takes building of relationship, hearing what they're saying, seeking to understand them. Uh, and I think that can't be a bad thing, um, listening more, speaking less, uh, hearing what people have got to say. And only then, uh, once we have a fair understanding and we've built a relationship, and then that's the time you can start to enter into dialogue rather than sort of the Facebook thing where basically that doesn't, uh, you don't start from that. You're sort of basically into it hammer and tongs straight away. And yeah, I love that idea of it being a cross-cultural conversation and actually that we enter into it as learners and that we might come away enriched. I like, I think that's a wonderful idea. I mean, and really that we've, we've all have come to our own theological perspectives from very different and diverse backgrounds. And we only, you know, and often very privileged backgrounds. So that that sense of actually learning is so, I think, vital really because an understanding that we actually don't have all the answers, you know, we don't have all the answers. I'm horrified. And, and that, and that yeah. diversity has existed since the beginning. So that's actually not the ultimatum because, you know, got, God is very diverse. You just look around creation. We expect that that's unity and diversity, but is that really, a th like, we can expect those things, but if we're actually really looking at the nature, very nature of God, he's extremely diverse. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. Do you think there are specific actions or attitudes that we can adopt that will help us to unite in common purpose within the Salvation Army? Or do you think it's inevitable that somewhere along the line, people that hold a particular theological opinion will have to drop off the edges of the organisation? It's a big question. Sounds I know. drastic, doesn't it? it does. Drop off the edges. And yet that seems to be what is the re that's what's at stake in many of our denominations around the world. So... I think it's been really interesting the last um, six months or so, however long it's been going on with the new vision statement and values and mission and everything that comes behind it because that can serve to be very polarising in terms of I either agree with it or I don't agree with it. Um, and is there that same paradigm? Is there that grey area if I agree with a bit of it and not this and so on? Um, I think one of the more telling marks for our, our territory over that period has been the possibly deliberate um, moving aside of the international positional statement of the Salvation Army, the international mission statement rather, where it says we are an evangelical part of the universal Christian church. It's interesting that on our website at the moment, the Territory's website, you will not find the international mission statement for the Salvation Army. You'll find our new values, you'll find our new uh, vision, you'll find our new and so on. Every other Army website I've seen, including the Eastern Territory's website, has the international mission statement, not the Southern Territories. So I don't know if that's been a deliberate thing to move away from that and that clear statement that the Salvation Army is an evangelical part of the Universal Christian Church to say, actually, let's hide that a bit and talk about our new values and talk about our new mission. That scares me a little. Yeah, I can understand that. And I think that would be a really interesting conversation to unpack, but unfortunately, we don't have time now. Um, but 
it reminds us again, there's a lot at stake, doesn't it? It reminds us again that the reason there's so much heat behind these conversations is it's not just a matter of your opinion. It's not just a matter of ice cream, is it? It's actually about my values and my life, my sense of purpose, my honouring God, my following Jesus, about actually living up to the calling and sense of identity that we have in Christ. And I think that the conversation today has been interesting and helpful. We've all been able to sit around the table and be nice to each other. But of course, we've only scratched the surface. We haven't faced situations on the ground that are affecting real people in real time. And that's of course, when it gets hard. I want to thank you all for coming in today. I, I'm uh, going to age myself here and tell you that my favourite TV show at the moment is called The Midwife. And I think that for me, they wrestle with some of these ideas incredibly well. So you see these nuns who are clearly very conservative, but they're dealing with a world that was changing significantly in the late 1950s, the early 1960s. And you watch them wrestle with what does it mean to be faithful? What does it mean to honor God with my life in a changing world? And I I see them meet people with grace. I see them meet people with compassion. So that pastoral imperative seems to allow them to enter into spaces and allow their theology to impact the decisions, but not to ever prevent them from showing love. And I hope that going forward, that that's what we can do, that we can continue the conversation. And I thank you all for modeling what it means to be able to have a conversation with people that we may or may not agree with, but be respectful. I hope that we can do that again. And thank you very much for coming in. Is there any last words that you want to say? Did you have a burning thing? Maybe. I don't want to be the last person to speak. But I, I would really, really be saddened to see that our um, diversity would affect in a negative way our mission. And that's ultimately to see people come into a relationship with Jesus. And I think that ultimately that has to be our driving force. That Even though we may differ in our opinions, our creativity I think should be encouraged because we're at a point in Australia, in the whole world where, you know, people aren't engaging in the Christian faith, but are desperately in need of it. Um, so I think how we do that, engage people creatively in their space, growing faith wherever life happens, I think we, I think we need to be encouraged and I'd really hate it if our diversity really negatively affects our mission. Yep. Anyone else? Just to avoid Di having to have the last word. Oh, yeah, that's good. <laughs> and, and speaking clearly from an evangelical paradigm, um, my only concern with uh, diversity and a variation of theological views and so on is at some stage it goes so far that it becomes heresy that at some point there's got to be a crossover point where actually what someone believes is just wrong. It's wrong for a liberal and it's wrong for an evangelical. It's wrong for anyone in that paradigm. That's just wrong. And so I think we need to be careful how diverse we can become because you can get so diverse that suddenly what you're talking about, that's not actually Christian and that person needs to be appropriately and lovingly and gracefully um, brought back into line as such or um, uh, introduced maybe to a greater truth, however you want to phrase it. But as I said, that diversity will get to a point where now it's so far away from Christ that it's actually not Christian. And that can happen on either side of the can. argument, can't it? Yeah. Jason, Dean, anything you'd like to say as we finish? 
I think you touched on something earlier, Sandy, which was that uh, I think the better starting place is to concentrate on the areas that we can agree on rather mm. than starting at the beginning about what we can't agree on. So, you know, that pragmatic thing of, well, you know, was I Jesus to this person? You know, can I align my behaviours and the way I spoke about things in the nature of the way that I understand Jesus? Um, you know, I for me, uh, that's a pretty good point to start to agree on. And uh, if we can agree on that, then there's a whole lot of things that uh, I'm happy not to agree on. Well said. I'm in agreement with that. Here, <laughs> here. Thank you. It's been lovely. Thanks for listening in. Today's discussion was guided by faith-based facilitation. For more information, head over to salvationarmy.org forward slash FBF forward slash resources.